Let me try and set the scene for you. It's you, four of your friends. You're adrift in a rubber raft, miles from shore. You're cold, wet, and you've lost your paddles. It's somewhere between twilight and complete dark. It's hard to tell due to the drizzling overcast and a dense fog that has just recently rolled in. You know the tide's running, but other than that, it's eerily serene. It's calm. The water's almost placid. The fog carries with it a rotten smell of low tide and dead things. It's cloying, gagging. You and your shipmates hear a high-pitched whine, followed by a tremendous splash. But it's outside of anything you can see. But it's just then, at the edges of your periphery, you see the dark shape of a long neck silhouetted against the night ocean, slowly circling your small rubber raft. Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of Terra Incognita. Yes, you heard that right, this is the very first episode, so go easy on me, I'm the new guy. This week's episode is Death by Sea Monster. My name is Vincent, and I'll be your host, your guide, your navigator. Broadcasting recording from the radio tower on Lovecraft Square, located on the beautiful but oddly foreboding campus of Miskatonic University. In this very first episode of Terra Incognita, we are going to look at the true story of five boys who went out on a diving excursion. Three of them were lost at sea, never to be found. One of them died, and one returned with one hell of a story to tell. On March 24, 1962, Edward Brian McCleary and four of his friends took a seven-foot inflatable rubber raft two miles out to do some skin diving. Edward Brian McCleary was 16. The other four boys were Eric Rule, also age 16, Bradford Rice, 14, Warren Felly, 16, and Larry Stewart Bill, 17. Now, of course, all of those names are worth remembering, but make a note of Larry Stewart Bill because we're going to be circling back to him later on. There's a very strange coincidence. As an aside, Edward Brian McCleary went by his middle name, Brian, and for clarity, that's how I'll refer to him for the remainder of the story. The raft itself, as I said earlier, was one of the rubber types. It was inflatable and apparently had been procured from the Air Force surplus store. The dive they were going on was just off the coast of Florida at Fort Pickens State Park, which is close to Pensacola and the Gulf Breeze area. There, two miles out, the USS Massachusetts rests on the bottom of the ocean in about 30 feet of water on a sandbar. To this day, it still remains a popular dive site. Now, Brian says he checked the weather forecast for that day, and apparently nothing had been forecasted other than blue skies and a cool March breeze. And keep in mind, even in Florida, March can be a little bit chilly. So they got the boat into the water and started heading for the sunken USS Massachusetts, which, as I said earlier, is located on a sandbar about two miles offshore. They paddled this rubber dinghy to the ship. Now, I've never seen an Air Force surplus rubber inflatable, but I've paddled my share of rubber boats, and I can tell you they are not the most hydrodynamic boat on the water. And even with five teenagers paddling, I'm sure that took a lot out of them just getting there. In fact, 
Brian makes a point to say that they did take turns paddling, just so nobody would be too tired to dive once they got there. They didn't have an anchor with them, or they didn't have a traditional anchor with them. What they had with them at the time was what they call a drift anchor, which is just a big nylon parachute that you throw overboard, and it helps keep the boat relatively in place. Uh, if you've ever seen dragster cars when they cross the finish line and they deploy that parachute, that's essentially what it looks like, only not quite as big. They were absolutely not meant to keep the boat in one place. That's what they planned on deploying once they got over top of the, dra the, the dive site. And I'm sure the plans were for somebody to remain in the boat. Now, another thing to keep in mind, throughout the report, Brian talks at length about how the water was ice cold. He mentions this fact multiple times. Does this have any significance? I honestly don't know. I do know, as I said earlier, even in Florida, especially back in those days, it's still chilly in March, and they are in northern Florida as well. However, as they got closer to the sunken ship, they began to encounter increasing chop and wind. Dark clouds started rolling in on top of them, uh, and they start being pushed out to sea at a pretty alarming rate. Now, in the report, I do believe I read that he dropped the anchor, but like I said, they are not designed to stop you. They are designed at best to slow you down. And if you are in a tide, if you're going with the current, it does almost no good whatsoever. Anyway, the situation becomes serious enough that at one point, Brian reports that the boys attempted to signal several, several powerboats had begun coming in off of the ocean, off of the Gulf, and into the channel because of the weather. And Brian reports that they attempted to signal several of these boats, yelling mayday, jumping up and down as much as they were able to in the boat, and waving. Apparently, there was one boat that went by with an elderly lady at the helm, and they were yelling and screaming and jumping up and down. And she simply waved back, smiled, and kept navigating into the channel. At that point, Brian grabs one of the spear guns and a red shirt, and he ties the red shirt around the spear, loads the spear into the spear gun, and fires it to try and get somebody's attention. Apparently, that spear landed within 50 feet of a boat, and, well, I'll just read what he wrote. He's, in a quote, he says, uh, the spear landed about 50 feet away from the boat. It was impossible for anyone to miss the distress signal, but miss it they did. So now they're in an actual storm, they're being pushed out to sea, and the weather's getting steadily worse. At that point, Brian, or one of his companions, it's not exactly who, who saw it, but somebody sees a buoy uh, about 20 yards away, and their idea is to, is to paddle to it, then tie up. That would at least halt them from going any further out. Now, if that sounds tall, keep in mind that's about right for a channel buoy. 20 feet is not unreasonable. So as they get closer to this buoy, the current's ripping through and it forms an eddy on the other side of the buoy and that's extremely dangerous. Essentially what happens is there's an undercurrent, a very powerful undercurrent, and it sucks the boat literally under the buoy and spits it out the other side. Fortunately, all the boys were able to jump clear of the boat in time swim around the buoy, avoiding the eddy, and then 
getting back into the boat. But of course now they're all soaked. The boat has been completely swamped. They're bailing with their hands as far as I understand uh, from what I've read. And it's just cold and miserable. And they're still being pushed out to sea. Once this, once the boat had been pushed under, um, they lost a good deal of the supplies, not the least of which were the paddles. An inflatable boat is difficult to, to maneuver with paddles. Without paddles, it's virtually impossible, especially fighting the tide, uh, wind, anything against you. And you're really not going to have any way to steer or navigate a boat like this. So at this point, there's not a lot to do other than to huddle in the boat for warmth, try and wait the storm out, and smoke cigarettes, which somehow hadn't gotten wet. I'll circle back to that as well later. We'll discuss that. Then, just as things probably couldn't get worse, uh, a fog starts to roll in on them. The rain does begin to let up a little bit. It turns into more of a mist than an actual rain. But this fog rolls in, and Brian describes it as very dense. It reduces visibility to 25 feet. And I don't know if you've ever been on the water in a fog, but it is, it's eerie. For one thing, fog has a way of, of distorting sounds. Things that are very far away sound very close, and things that are very close can sound very far away. It, it really just warps and distorts your sense of direction and distance for anything you hear. And of course, you can't see anything at all. I mean, you know, you're in a fog, obviously. And when you're on the open water, you have no land, landmarks to navigate by. And at this point, it is starting to get later in the day. Brian describes it at this point almost pitch black due to the storm, the fog, and just being that far out at sea in the middle of all this. From here, all they can do is wait the storm out, huddle in the boat for warmth, and smoke cigarettes, which somehow hadn't gotten wet. And I'll, I'll get back to that point later. Warmer air front moves through, and Brian reports that the water gets substantially warmer as well. Visibility is reduced to 20 feet, and at this point, the boys decide to not even try and navigate. They're just going to wait for help because they have no idea where they're going. They have no landmarks. They have no stars to navigate by. This is decades before GPS, and they didn't have a compass. So they, they are literally now adrift. No way to navigate, no way to move, and they have zero visibility. Traditionally, when there is a fog on the water, everything is very still because if there was any wind, it would be blown away. So you have this very still, eerie type of dislocation is the only word I can think of. It's, it's, a, it's very surreal. In addition to that, and noise in general is just very distorted. It's, it's very difficult to explain if you've never experienced it. That's what the boys are in at this point. And I can only imagine the unease that is building. They're lost. They don't know where they're going. They're in this very surreal, very unusual set of circumstances that none of them had anticipated. And there's just like this texture to being in, in the fog like that, that, that really dislocate that I keep coming back to that word. It, it is a dislocation. You are no longer a part of everything you under. I, 
I, I know I'm being overly dramatic, but I, I can't really find the words to explain it. Just take my word for it. It is, it is very unnerving, even if you're experienced. Um, if you've been on the water, it's, it's very unnerving. So with this fog and this warm air and these warm currents, there comes this heavy cloying odor of low tide and rotten fish. Brian says that it, it was almost gagging. It was so heavy. The stench was just overpowering. It smelled like rotten fish. Uh, and as I said, they have nothing but a drizzle at this point. It's more of a mist. And as they're sitting in the boat trying to wait this out, they hear this huge splash. And I'm going to quote Brian here in the written report. He says, he sees, quote, what looked like a telephone pole. It was about 10 feet high with a bulb on top. It stood erect for a moment, then bent in the middle and dove under. The sickening odor filled the air, unquote. I can't even imagine seeing something like that at the edge of your periphery in, in the fog at twilight. And these are boys. Keep in mind, the oldest of these boys are 17. The youngest is 14. These are not experienced, you know, seamen. These, these are just kids in a rubber raft. So at this point, there's a sudden and very heated discussion about what it was they just witnessed. Warren suggests that it was an oarfish. Brian suggests a sea monster. They're already on edge. Their nerves are frayed. They're scared. They're cold. Uh, they just want to go home. Bringing up the sea monster was probably not in anybody's best interest, but I can also understand why they would think that. Everything else has gone south. Um, they're not thinking rationally, so I'm not going to really hold that against them, but I could see where it would absolutely add to the panic that's setting in. There's another splash, and this one is followed by a high-pitched whine, and as I said earlier, the sounds are weird, so who knows, if, you know, uh, it's very hard to describe a sound, but that's all we have to go on is Brian's, quote, high-pitched whine, unquote, so who knows what it really was that they heard but whatever it was it must have been bad because immediately panic sets in and these boys put on their flippers their masks their snorkel they dive over and they start swimming for what they believe to be the shore what brian reports this when he gets into the water it's still very warm and i'm going to quote him again he says quote Patches of brown, crusty slime lay all over the surface, unquote. So all five boys are swimming for what, in the direction they think is the, the shipwreck. While they're swimming, the water starts to get colder again, and the rain starts to roll back on top of them. It stops being a mist. It starts being a real rain again. And I want to stress here that Brian is describing everyone at this point as being exhausted, cold, and cramping up. And I can absolutely believe this after what they've been through. They, they've been swimming for perhaps 30 seconds when Warren cries out, Hey, help me, help me, it's got Brad, before he too vanishes. Brian is now swimming with Larry and Eric, but has lost sight of Warren and Brad. There's a lot of names here, and I'll try and keep it as simple as possible but just to make sure we're all on the same page, at this point, the only three people that are in Brian's sight are, are Brian himself, obviously, Larry and Eric. Warren and Brad have both completely disappeared. Next, as they're swimming, 
Brian realizes that Larry too has vanished. So now there are three people gone and it's just Brian and Eric. Once they realize that Larry is nowhere near them, Eric and Brian start doing shallow dives in that vicinity to try and find him. They don't locate him. They can't find him. And so they start, they surface again and they start swimming again back for the Massachusetts or at least the direction they think it is. Now at this point, Eric starts cramping up. His legs begin cramping up and they become just completely useless. Brian says, you know, hold on to my neck. I'll do the swimming. Just try not to drag me under. Um, and so now Brian is dragging Eric and they're paddling for what he hopes is the shore or at least the Massachusetts. I don't know how the Massachusetts looks today. I've never seen it personally. I lived in Florida for many years. I just never got up to the Massachusetts. I lived considerably further south of Pensacola on the Gulf side. I do know from the pictures I've seen, a good deal of that wreck was out of the water, uh, just mostly debris. It looked like some old conning towers and things like that stuck out of the water. I don't know if that's the case anymore. It could very well be. I haven't seen pictures of it in years. But I think when they were swimming towards the wreck, what they were hoping to do was at least get to one of the towers where they could climb up and hold on to something. It's not big enough for you to walk around on or even to probably even sit on even back then, but it was enough that you could cling on to it for a minute and get out of the water. I think that's what they were thinking about when they were headed for the Massachusetts. Or it could have been simply they knew if they headed for the Massachusetts, they could orient themselves from there and then get to shore. I don't really know. And truth be told, I suspect they didn't either. At this point, they're, they're adrenaline-fueled. They're not thinking. They're in a panic. And they're just trying to get to shore. As they're swimming, Brian says there's a freak wave. That he It kind of came out of nowhere. And it knocks Eric off of his back. And he looks around and he does spot him. And he sees that he's able to swim again. And he says he's swimming in the same direction as him. And they both, at this point, believe they're swimming for the boat. And Brian says, okay, if you, you know, Brian thinks, okay, if he can swim and we're both heading the same direction, we'll just keep going. And then this is, and again, I'm going to quote, because it's probably going to be better to hear Brian's words rather than anything I can describe. But he says, quote, right next to Eric, that telephone pole-like figure broke the water. I could see the long neck and two small eyes. The mouth opened and it bent over. It dove on top of Eric, dragging him under. I screamed and began to swim past the ship. My insides were shaking uncontrollably, unquote. Um, at this point, Brian doesn't remember anything until he washes up on a beach. Uh, the curtain goes black. That's the end of it. He says he washes up. It's still night, and he finds, quote, a tower of some sort, unquote, which he climbs and sleeps on the floor. I'm sure what he found was a lifeguard station. They're all up and down the coast on popular beaches, especially a state park. I could imagine them having many of them. I'm sure that's what he found was a lifeguard tower. So he climbs up there, he passes out. The next morning, he wakes up, he climbs down, and he starts to walk, but his legs completely give out underneath of him. He falls down on the beach, and he starts to crawl. Uh, some passerbyers find him, and once again, he passes out, and he wakes up in the hospital. That's the story in a nutshell. Now, of course, there's a lot to unpack here. First off, 
when he wakes up in the hospital, obviously there's a lot of questions. He says he speaks to a cop, and he tells the cop the whole story. And according to him, and we have no way of verifying this, the cop says, I believe you, son, but I can't really put that in my report. And essentially, he writes down that it was uh, the four boys drowning by misadventure, Brian being the only survivor. Additionally, he was interviewed by several newspapers, and he says that he told them the same, the true story, and the newspaper said, we can't report that. So if you look at any of the reports of the newspaper of that time, they all basically say uh, four boys drowned in misadventure. They make no mention of a sea monster. The only place we can find Brian's report is in a tabloid called Fate Magazine. He wrote it up, he sent it in to him, and they published it. A week later, Brad Rice's body is recovered. I don't know where it was recovered or how it was recovered. I was not able to find those details. I do know that a body that has been at sea for a week has suffered some very serious damage for a variety of reasons that I'm not going to go into out of respect for the family. But I've, I've read a lot um, about this particular story, and people always want to know, well, what was the condition of the body? And I can tell you, after a week at sea, who knows what the condition was, what you could tell from it, and ultimately, Brad Rice was listed as a drowning victim. That is how the coroner wrote it up, and that's how it exists in the, the records to this day. The reports from the doctors at the naval, he was taken to a naval hospital, and the reports from the naval doctors there say that he was in the water for at least 12 hours. The search and rescue that went out to try and recover the bodies say that they were much further out than the two miles of the wreck, that they were closer to five miles out. That really lines up with everything I can find. When I look at maps, when I read the story about how long it took them to get to where they were going, the tide running out, all of that really lines up, and at least that part we can nail down. Okay, so let's talk about the elephant in the room. Whenever I read about this story, whenever there's comments, the first thing that is brought up is, why did they bail out of the raft? Brian doesn't say, and I have no definitive answer, but I think I have some pretty good guesses. First off, that raft isn't going anywhere. If they're in any kind of trouble, they're not going to paddle that raft to safety. And I think if they did see what Brian described, they understood that that raft was going to offer a modicum of safety, if any at all. They didn't know how close they were to the Massachusetts or how close they were to shore, but they believed they were actually much closer than they were. We know that based upon the testimony from the search and rescue when they said they were five miles out. They believed they were closer to two miles out. A kid in good shape with a pair of fins on can make two miles pretty quick. I mean, with a set of good flippers on, you can't swim as fast as you can sprint, but you can swim a lot faster than you can walk. So I think what they were what they were contemplating at the moment was their best bet was to try and outrun this thing, get in the water, and just head for shore. And again, they were much further out than they thought they were. Secondly, they 
panic set in. I, I don't think there was a whole lot of rationale behind anything they did. At no point do I think they sat down and decided what to do. I think they were in a panic. And the adrenaline's running. They saw something. Now, whether it was a sea monster or not, I believe they believed that. Once Brian brought it up, that image was in their mind or that idea was in their mind. So for them, that was their reality. Now, what it was, we'll never know for certain. And we'll cover that in a little bit. There's some other aspects of that I want to cover, but we'll get to that in a minute. So when people say, you know, how did they, why did they leave the boat? That is my best guess, is they thought they were closer to shore than they actually were. They couldn't move that boat. And they knew that that boat wasn't going to offer a lot of safety in the face of a sea monster. A smaller, a smaller point that I see brought up time and again is the cigarettes. You know, if the boat got sunk under, if the, if the boat actually was pulled completely underwater, how were they able to smoke cigarettes? Well, I think I have a pretty good answer for that as well. I know back then they didn't have Ziploc baggies, but they did have plastic bags. And those rubber inflatable rafts along the side of them, they all had, not compartments, they had hanging nylon bags that were attached to the boat. And you could store some items in there, bottled water, stuff like that. I have no doubt if they brought cigarettes on that boat, because those boats just got wet. I don't care how hard you try. I've got a rubber inflatable. You can do, you can take every precaution known to man. You're going to get water in the bottom of that thing. It's just the way it happens. So if somebody brought cigarettes, I can guarantee you, they wrapped up their matches and their cigarettes in something plastic and then probably wrapped that up in something plastic, then wrapped that up in a towel and then stuck it into the side of the boat. So when the boat got sucked under, I'm sure that the cigarettes were secured and they were waterproofed. I can't imagine trying to take a pack of cigarettes on a rubber raft without taking some precautions. Everything gets wet. I don't care what it is. And I don't care how many precautions you take. It's just the way it's going to be. So I don't have too much of a problem with them smoking cigarettes. You know, I hear that brought up that that's impossible. That is not impossible. I, I absolutely 100% believe that could have taken place. And the one we kind of covered earlier, another point that gets brought up time and again, is what was the condition of Bradford Rice's body if he had been attacked by a sea monster? And again, we have very limited information on that. And again, I would only stress that that body was in the water, in the ocean, for a week. And having spent a good deal of time on the water, on the ocean, I can tell you the ocean plays for keeps. And who knows what, tra what trauma it suffered in that week time. And even if, it, even if it were or were not attacked by a sea monster, we would really never be able to tell. That's where I'm going to leave that. There would be no way of, of getting a definitive answer on that one way or the other. The ocean is just merciless. And like I say, it plays for keeps. So I don't believe there's anything that can be gained from that. And I don't think it's even an avenue worth exploring. So there's uh, earlier when I said, remember Larry Stewart, Bill, there's a, a side story to this. And I'm going to, I was hesitant to mention it, but I'm going to. Because first, I can't prove it. And secondly, I'm not even sure if it means anything, but 
it's a very strange coincidence, and some of the facts do check out. So I'm going to go ahead and mention it here, but I'm, I'm going to urge you to take this with a grain of salt or treat it as though you heard it from a jailhouse informant. In the, in the new, or the, I'm sorry, in the young earth creationist circles, there is a gentleman that goes around who calls himself Dr. Dino. His name is uh, Kent Hovind, and he claims to be a, a doctor, and he's not. He, um, that's a title he kind of assigned to himself. But he goes around and he gives speeches about how he has unequivocal proof that the world is 6,000 years old, that evolution is false. He, he's one of those guys. And I'm not going to turn this into a political discussion, but just understand that's where he's coming from. He does keep fairly accurate transcripts of his talks that he gives because that's how he makes his money. And so he has to keep these pretty accurate. And during one of his talks, he relates a very interesting story. And I'm, I'm going to relate it here. And again, I can't stress enough, this kind of falls off the deep end but enough of it checks out that I think it's worth repeating. At one of his sermons one time, after a sermon, a woman approached him, and she introduced herself as Val Bill. And she said that she believed everything that Kent Hovind said because her son, her stepson, I'm sorry, her stepson, had been attacked and killed by a dinosaur. It turns out her stepson was... Larry Stewart Bill. At this point, everything is hearsay, except she goes on to give her name, her address, and she urges anybody who wants to know more to contact her. And she says that her husband was a higher ranking official in the Navy, and he was a part of the search and rescue that went looking for the boys, which would make sense. This is a naval base. I mean, up there by Fort Pickens, Gulf Breeze is up that way. You can look this story up. I'm not going to repeat her address. I, I believe she must have passed away by now. She was quite old when this story was released some, some years ago, and it's been some years since then. But her name, her address, her stepson, everything checks out. That can only mean one of two things. Either this was a made-up story or she really said these things, and she believes that her stepson was killed by a dinosaur. Of course, it could simply be that she heard the story from Brian, she wanted to believe it for whatever reason, and she's retelling it as she believes it. I can't say, but I do have to believe at some point, if she is, if this story is true, she went and talked to Brian. I have to believe whether this story is true or not. She did at some point go and talk to Brian. I believe all the parents at some point had to go and talk to Brian. They wanted to hear the story. I know as a parent, if something were to happen to my child and there was somebody else present at his passing, I would definitely want to speak to that person and get every single detail, no matter how painful. So I'm sure at some point she did speak to Brian McCleary and he must have told her the story that he related to fate. And again, all of this falls into the category of hearsay and secondhand knowledge. But it is interesting that, that it ties in. And of course, we have to make, you know, Kent Hovind's reputation is, his character is absolutely impeachable. So 
and I'm not saying that just because I disagree with his with his beliefs. I'm saying that because he has done some very questionable things. I'm not going to get into that. This is not a political or a religious talk show. Another point I want to bring up, and again, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything at all, but I can tell you at least this one is true, and we have a lot of facts and dates to back it up. A couple of years later, in I'm sorry, let me start over. Um, in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, there is the Woods Hole, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, and it is a very famous oceanographic institute. I've been there once or twice. It's an amazing facility. They have a submersible there called the Alvin. It's a three-man sub. It has done some incredible things. It it discovered the first uh, hydrothermal vents. It made some incredible dives. It's been the Challenger. It has not been all the way down to Challenger Deep. I take that back. It has been a long way down, though. But it's been operating uh, since the early 60s. In 1965, it was diving the tongue of the ocean just off of the Bahamas. And there were three people inside, as there always were. There's two captains and a researcher. That's how they go down. The two captains at the time, the pilot was Marvin McManus, and the co-pilot was Captain Bill Rainey. They were diving, and Captain McMarvis looks over, and he sees what he thinks is a telephone pole, which is absolutely not unusual. Telephone poles in those days were often shipped to the Bahamas on great, big, long, flat boat, you know, flat sledge boats, they would fall off and they would float and they'd get waterlogged and they'd sink a little bit and they'd sink a little more and they would maintain some degree of buoyancy as they slowly sank to the bottom and so they would encounter them when they were diving. So he sees what he thinks is a telephone pole when it starts to swim and he realizes he's looking at, you know what, I'll, I'll quote it. I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at the report. I'll quote it for you. After descending nearly one mile deep into a crevasse, the pilots allegedly noticed some movement and spotted an object which they took to be a utility pole. While their position allowed a better view of the object, they realized it was an animal which possessed a thick body propelled by flippers, a long neck, and a rather snake-like head. Before the submersible cam submersible's cameras could reach the correct angle and activate, the animal quickly ascended and swam off. The observation was entered into their logbook, although the two remained hesitant to speak further about it for fear of ridicule. So, that sounds exactly like what Brian claims to have seen. And his sighting took place in 1962. This sighting took place in July of 1965. The Bahamas are considerably warmer than northern Florida Gulf. Does that mean anything? Again, I'm not sure. We know Brian reports that during his sighting, there was a rather steep increase in both water temperature and air temperature. In addition to that, he saw some brown crust on top of the water, which means there was a sudden change in the, the, con the, the constituents of the water. I don't know. if It's tantalizing. It's like... There's almost enough pieces to put all of this together to get a, a solid picture, but not quite enough. The last thing I'll leave you with on this is Brian McCleary passed away 
some years ago. I do know he only spoke about this incident two times in his life, or at least that's all I was able to find. One time he spoke about it when it happened, and the second time was about 10 years after it happened. He did a written interview with Tim Dimsdale, the uh, famous researcher of Loch Ness, not the Tim Dimsdale from Fairly Odd Parents, two different people completely, same last name, same name, different people. On the second interview, he made a sketch. He clarified some of the details, and that was it. After that, he never spoke of it again publicly that I'm aware of. I have heard numerous rumors, and again, I have to stress, these are just rumors. I heard many rumors that he struggled with addiction and alcoholism for the remainder of his life. I can absolutely believe that. There has to be some survivor's guilt there. And he could be looked up. Now, I lived in Florida. I didn't live far from him, and I was very tempted on more than one occasion to go see him and ask him about this. And ultimately what I decided was his right to privacy trumped my need to know. That's where I would urge you to leave this. Don't harass his family. Don't contact anybody about this. This may be a mystery. We, I'm actually pretty sure this will remain a mystery we will never solve. And that's okay. It's going to have to be okay because it's not worth disrupting somebody's life over. If they want it to remain a secret, so be it. Maybe someday somebody will talk. Somebody will say that they know the story. Because at the end, there's only a couple of options here. There's only a couple of ways this went down. One is Brian flipped out and killed four kids and tried to cover it up with a sea monster story. That is so preposterous, I haven't really even considered it with any seriousness. That's just outlandish to me if you're going to kill four of your buddies I would certainly think you would have a better story than a sea monster attacked us two the one that seems to be the most prevalent theory is that five kids went out on the water they experienced some unexpected bad weather and consequently panicked and drowned one of them survived four of them didn't that seems to be the most prevalent theory and of course the third one Four kids were killed by a sea monster and one survived. I don't know. Um, you know, a lot of these stories, I want there to be a truth story to it. I want there to be... This one, I, I find myself... I don't want any of them to be true. I... This is a bad one in that respect. But it's also a mystery. And any mystery is tantalizing. So, that's where we leave it. That's the end of this week's episode. Um, thanks for coming along on my very first adventure. Glad to have you with me. Next week, we are going to cover another sunshiny, upbeat story, The Hinterkaifeck Murders, which took place in Bavaria in 1919. And much like this story, I think there's going to be a little bit more to it than you originally heard, even if you've looked into it. All right. Take care, be good to one another, and we will catch up with you next week.